Welcome to Crowdsourcing Revolution. I'm Amanda Rice. Today is Friday, July 21st, 2023. And we are on part four of a series of articles and links from Citizens Handbook, which is citizenshandbook.org. Everybody knows a woman 
Welcome to Crowdsourcing Revolution. This is part four in a multi-part series from the Citizen's Handbook, which you can get at citizenshandbook.org. And the particular link is in the show notes. The Tyranny of Structurelessness, Joe Freeman. The Tyranny of Structurelessness was first published in 1970 to address the need for organization in the U.S. women's movement as it sought to move from criticizing society to changing society. Over the years, it has become an important document for groups of all kinds interested in achieving concrete results. I'm going to read this essay the tyranny of structurelessness, which is available in lots of different places on the internet. This is the complete essay that I'm gonna to read today. There are several sections and it's gonna take a little bit of time. So settle in. I also have pulled up a few critiques of it and if we get into some conversation, perhaps we'll go there. The Tyranny of Structurelessness. Throughout the recent revival of socialist politics, socialist feminists have worked to ensure that their ideas are at the center of the ascendant movement emphasizing, for example, the economic dimension of abortion access and the crucial role of unions in fighting sexual violence. But often there has been less awareness of the history of feminist organizing and its lessons for how to turn explosions of radical energy into lasting organizations. As an activist and theorist at the heart of the 60s and 70s women's movement, liberation movement, Joe Freeman, the author of the classic early 1970s essay, The Tyranny of Structurelessness, which is reprinted below, represents an important voice in filling this gap. Freeman was an active, ah, blah, blah, blah. this is a, uh, I'm going to go back. This is a this is The Tyranny of Structurelessness by Joe Freeman with an introduction by Laura Tannenbaum. This particular essay, which is reprinted on, in full on this website in which I'm going to read, starts out with this introduction from Laura Tannenbaum from 2019. Throughout the recent revival of socialist politics, socialist feminists wor have worked to ensure that their ideas are at the center of the ascendant movement, emphasizing, for example, the economic dimension of abortion access and the crucial role of unions in fighting sexual violence. But often there has been less awareness of the history of feminist organizing and its lessons for how to turn explosions of radical energy into lasting organizations. 
as an activist and theorist at the heart of the 1960s and 70s women's liberation movement, Joe Freeman, author of the classic early 1970s essay, The Tyranny of Structurelessness, which is reprinted here, presents an important voice in filling this gap. Freeman was active in the anti-nuclear free speech and civil rights movements before co-founding the Chicago Women's Liberation Union and other feminist groups. In the early heady days of the movement, small tightly knit radical groups flourished filled with movement veterans who staged creative direct actions and engaged in path-breaking ideological work. It was out of this ferment that consciousness raising emerged. Coined by Kathy Sarachild, the term referred to the practice by which women spoke about certain aspects of their lives, say, ending up a homemaker instead of a scientist, and then discussed both the political contexts that shaped these experiences and the political solutions to their oppression. By the early 70s, when Freeman wrote Structurelessness, thousands of consciousness-raising groups had cropped up across the country, many comprised of women without prior political experience. In this sense, they were highly successful, transforming countless lives and making up the most visible and accessible part of the movement in many places. But Freeman details in the essay, many consciousness-raising groups struggled to translate insight into action because of the way they organized themselves. While small, tight-knit groups worked well for building community and a shared sense of identity, without formal structures, they had a harder time formulating and carrying out plans for action. Hierarchies proved stubborn too. Rather than flattening things out, the ideal of structurelessness generated informal, unaccountable hierarchies that were difficult for others to navigate, especially if they couldn't sit through endless meetings to figure out what was really going on. At its worst, structurelessness not only ended up producing unacknowledged leaders, but actively facilitated abuse. In her 1976 essay, Trashing, Freeman describes women being frozen out of movement groups simply for showing independence or a talent for organizing. Carried out under the guise of anti-elitism, trashing resulted in a huge loss in movement capabilities, to say nothing of the devastating personal toll it took. The tragic effects of structurelessness might prompt us to look for simple formulas for organizational models that are both effective and asshole-proof. And clearly, we should drop any naive aversion to organization and structure. Democratizing power, not getting rid of it, should be our aim. But the tyranny of structurelessness also makes clear that there are no easy answers. 
if structure is inevitable and necessary, the kind of structures organizations choose depends on their makeup, the political situation, and movement goals. At times, there are legitimate trade-offs between completing a task quickly and fostering the participation that can expand an organization and deepens people's commitment to it. As Freeman reminds us at the end of her essay, what is necessary is to experiment with what we know can work and above all, to enter conversations honestly and openly. The Tyranny of Structureless by Joe Freeman. Before I begin, I'd just like to state that everywhere where it says feminist, I think you could replace it with activist because this isn't just applicable to the women's movement the way that I read it. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it. The Tyranny of Structurelessness, Joe Freeman, 1970. During the years in which the women's liberation movement has been taking shape, a great emphasis has been placed on what are called leaderless, structureless groups as the main, if not sole, organizational form of the movement. The source of this idea was a natural reaction against the overstructured society in which most of us found ourselves and the inevitable control this gave others over our lives and the continual elitism of the left and similar groups among those who were supposedly fighting this overstructuredness. The idea of structurelessness, however, has moved from a healthy counter to those tendencies to becoming a goddess in its own right. The idea is as little examined as the term itself is much used, but it has become an intrinsic and unquestioned part of women's liberation ideology. For the early development of the movement, this did not much matter. It early defined its main goal and its main method as consciousness raising and the structureless rap group was an excellent means to this end. The looseness and informality of it encouraged participation in discussions and its often supportive atmosphere elicited personal insight. If nothing more concrete than personal insight ever re resulted from these groups, that did not much matter because their purpose did not really extend beyond this. The basic problems didn't appear until individual rap groups exhausted the virtues of consciousness raising and decided they wanted to do something more specific. At this point, they usually foundered because most groups were unwilling to change their structure when they changed their tasks. Women had thoroughly accepted the idea of structurelessness without realizing the limitations of its uses. People would try to use the structureless group and the informal conference for purposes for which they were unsuitable out of a blind belief that no other means could possibly be anything but oppressive. 
If the movement is to grow beyond these elementary stages of development, it will have to disabuse itself of some of the prejudices about organization and structure. There is nothing inherently bad about either of these. They can be, they can be and often are misused. But to reject them out of hand because they are misused is to deny ourselves the necessary tools for further development. We need to understand why structurelessness does not work. Formal and informal structures. Contrary to what we would like to believe, there is no such thing as a structureless group. Any group of people, whatever nature that comes together for any length of time, for any purpose, will inevitably structure itself in some fashion. The structure may be flexible. It may vary over time. It may evenly or unevenly distribute tasks, power, and resources over the members of the group. But it will be formed regardless of the abilities, personalities, or intentions of the people involved. The very fact that we are individuals with different talents, predispositions, and backgrounds make this inevitable. Only if we refused to relate or interact on any basis whatsoever could we approximate structurelessness, and that is not the nature of a human group. This means that to strive for a structureless group is as useful and as deceptive as to aim at an objective news story, value-free social science, or a free economy. A laissez-faire group is about as realistic as a laissez-faire society. The idea becomes a smokescreen for the strong or the lucky to establish unquestioned hegemony over others. This hegemony can be so easily established because of the idea of structurelessness does not prevent the formation of informal structures, only formal ones. Similarly, laissez-faire philosophy did not prevent the economically powerful from establishing control over wages, prices, and distribution of goods. It only prevented the government from doing so. Thus, structurelessness becomes a way of masking power, and within the women's movement is usually most strongly advocated by those who are mo the most powerful, whether they are conscious of their power or not. As long as the structure of the group is informal, the rules of how decisions are made are only known to a few, and awareness of power is limited to those who know the rules. Those who do not know the rules and are not chosen for initiation must remain in confusion or suffer from paranoid delusions that something is happening of which they are not quite aware. For everyone to have the opportunity to be involved in a given group and to participate in its activities, the structure must be explicit, not implicit. The rules of decision-making must be open and available to everyone, and this can only happen if they are formalized. This is not to say that formalization of a structure of a group will destroy the informal structure. It usually doesn't. 
but it does hinder the informal structure from having predominant control and make available some means of attacking it if the people involved are not at least responsible to the needs of the group at large. Structurelessness is organizationally impossible. We cannot decide whether to have a structured or structureless group, only whether or not to have a formally structured one. Therefore, the word will not be used any longer except to refer to the idea it represents. Unstructured will refer to those groups which have not been deliberately structured in a particular manner. Structured will refer to those which have. A structured group always has a formal structure and may also have an informal or covert structure. This inform, it is this informal structure, particularly in unstructured groups, which forms the basis for elites. Which brings us to the next section, the nature of elitism. Elitist is probably one of the most abused words in the women's liberation movement. It is used as frequently and for the same reasons as pinko was used in the 50s. It is rarely used correctly. Within the movement, it commonly refers to individuals, though the personal characteristics and activities of those to whom it is directed may differ widely. An individual, as an individual, can never be an elitist because the only proper application of the term elite is to groups. An individual, regardless of how well-known that person may be, can never be an elite. Correctly, an elite refers to a small group of people who have power over a larger group of which they are a part, usually without direct responsibility to that larger group. And often without their knowledge or consent. A person becomes an elitist by being part of or advocating the rule by such a small group whether or not that individual is well-known or not known at all. Notoriety is not a definition of an elitist. The most insidious elites are usually run by people not known to the larger public at all. Intelligent elitists are usually smart enough not to allow themselves to become very well-known. When they become known, they are watched, and the mask over their power is no longer firmly lodged. Elites are not conspiracies. Very seldom does a small group of people get together and deliberately try to take over a larger group for its own ends. Elites are nothing more and nothing less than groups of friends who also happen to participate in the same political activities. They would probably maintain their friendship whether or not they were involved in political activities. They would probably be involved in political activities whether or not they maintained their friendships. It is the coincidence of these two phenomena which creates elites in any group 
and makes them so difficult to break. These friendship groups function as networks of communication outside any regular channels for such communication that may have been set up by the group. If no channels are set up, they function as the only networks of communication. Because people are friends, because they usually share the same values and orientations, because they talk to each other socially and consult with each other when common decisions have to be made, the people involved in these networks have more power in the group than those who don't. And it is a rare group that does not establish some informal networks of communications through the friends that are made in it. Some groups, depending on their size, may have more than one such informal communications network. Networks may even overlap. When only one such network exists, it is the elite of an otherwise unstructured group, whether the participants in it want to be elitists or not. If it is the only such network in a structured group, it may or may not be an, an elite, depending on its composition and the nature of the formal structure. If there are two or more such networks of friends, they may compete for power within the group, thus forming factions. Or one may deliberately opt out of the competition, leaving the other side as the elite. In a structured group, two or more such friendship networks usually compete with each other for formal power. This is often the healthiest situation, as the other members are in a position to arbitrate between the two competitors for power, and thus to make demands on those to whom they give their temporary allegiance. The inevitably elitist and exclusive nature of informal communication networks of friends is neither a new phenomenon characteristic of the women's movement, nor a phenomenon new to women. Such informal relationships have excluded women for centuries from participating in integrated groups of which they were a part. In any profession or organization, these networks have created the, quote, locker room mentality and the, quote, old school ties, which have effectively prevented women as a group, as well as some men individually, from having equal access to sources of power and social reward. Much of the energy of the past women's movements have, has been directed to having the structures of decision-making and the selection process, processes formalized so that the exclusion of women could be confronted directly. As we well know, these efforts have not prevented the informal male-only networks from discriminating against women, but they have made it more difficult. Because elite because elites are informal does not mean they are invisible. At any small group meeting, anyone with a sharp eye and an acute ear can tell who is influencing whom. The members of a friendship group will relate more to each other than to other people. They listen more attentively and interrupt less. They repeat each other's points and give in amiably. They tend to ignore or grapple with the outs whose approval is not necessary for making decisions. 
but it is necessary for the outs to stay on good terms with the ins. Of course, the lines are not as sharp as I have drawn them. They are nuances of interaction, not pre-written scripts. But they are discernible, and they do have their effect. Once one knows with whom it is important to check before a decision is made, and whose approval is the stamp of acceptance, one knows who's running things. Since movement groups have made no concrete decisions about who shall exercise power within them, many different criteria are used around the country. Most criteria are along the lines of traditional female characteristics. For instance, in the early days of the movement, marriage was usually a prerequisite for participation in the informal elite. As women have been traditionally taught, married women relate primarily to each other and look upon single women as too threatening to have close friends, to have as close friends. In many cities, this criterion was further refined to include only those women married to new left men. This, that's capital new, capital left men. This standard had more than tradition behind it, however, because new left men often had access to resources needed by the movement, such as mailing lists, printing presses, contacts, and information. And women were used to getting what they needed through men rather than independently. As the movement has changed through time, marriage has become less a less universal criterion for effective participation. But all informal elites establish standards by which only women who possess certain material or personal characteristics may join. They frequently include middle-class background, despite all the rhetoric re about relating to the working class, being married, not being married but living with someone, being or pretending to be a lesbian, being between the ages of 20 and 30, being college educated or at least having some college background, being hip, not being too hip, holding certain political line or identification as radical, having children or at least liking them, not having children, having certain feminine personality characteristics such as being nice, dressing right, whether in the traditional style or the anti-traditional style, etc. There are also some characteristics which will almost always tag one as a deviant who should not be related to. These include being too old, working full-time, particularly if one is actively committed to a career, not being nice, and being avowedly single, i.e. neither actively heterosexual nor homosexual. Other criteria that could be included, but they all have their common themes. The characteristics prerequisite for participating in the informal elites of the movement 
and thus for exercising power, one's can concern one's background, personality, or allocation of time. They do not include one's competence, dedication to feminism, talents, or potential contribution to the movement. The former criteria, the former are the criteria one usually uses in determining one's friends. The latter are what any movement or organization has to use if it's going to be politically effective. The criteria of participation may differ from group to group, but the means of becoming a member of the informal elite, if one meets those criteria, are pretty much the same. The only main difference depends on whether one is in a group from the beginning or joins it after it has begun. If involved from the beginning, it is important to have as many of one's personal friends as possible also join. If no one knows anyone, anyone else very well, then one must deliberately form friendships with a select number and establish the informal interaction patterns crucial to the creation of an informal structure. Once the informal patterns are formed, they act to maintain themselves. And one of the most successful tactics of maintenance is to continuously recruit new people who, quote, fit in. One joins such an elite much the same way one pledges a sorority. If perceived as a potential addition, one is rushed by the members of the informal structure and eventually either dropped or initiated. If the sorority is not politically aware enough to actively engage in this process itself, it can be started by the outsider in pretty much the same way one joins any private club. Find a sponsor, i.e. pick some member of the elite who appears to be well-respected within it and actively cultivate that person's friendship. Eventually, she will most likely bring you into the inner circle. All of these procedures take time. So if one works full time or has similar major commitment, it is usually impossible to join simply because there are not enough hours left to go to all the meetings and cultivate the personal relationships necessary to have a voice in the decision making. This is why formal structures of decision making are a boon to the overworked person. Having an established process for decision-making ensures that everyone can participate in it to some extent. Although this dissection of the process of elite formation within small groups has been critical in perspective, it is not made in the belief that these informal structures are inevitably bad, just that they're merely inevitable. All groups create informal structures as a result of interaction patterns among the members of the group. Such informal structures can do very useful things. But only unstructured groups are totally governed by them. When informal elites are combined with a myth of structurelessness, there can be no attempt to put limits on the use of power. It becomes capricious. This has two potentially negative consequences of which we should be aware. The first is that the informal structure of decision-making will be much like a sorority, one in which people listen to others because they like them and not because they say significant things. 
As long as the movement does not do significant things, this does not much matter. But if its development is not to be arrested at this preliminary stage, it will have to alter this trend. The second potentially negative consequence is that informal structures have no obligation to be responsible to the group at large. Their power was not given to them, it cannot be taken away. Their influence is not based on what they do for the group. Therefore, they cannot be directly influenced by the group. This does not necessarily make informal structures irresponsible. Those who are concerned with maintaining their influence will usually try to be responsible. The group simply cannot compel such responsibility. It is dependent on the interests of the elite. The next section is the star system with star in quotation marks. The idea of structurelessness has created the star system. We live in a society which expects political groups to make decisions and to select people to articulate those decisions to the public at large. The press and the public do not know how to listen seriously to individual women as women. They want to know how the group feels. Only three techniques have ever been developed for establishing mass group opinion. The vote or referendum, the public opinion survey questionnaire, and the selection of group spokespeople at, at an appropriate meeting. The women's liberation movement has used none of these to communicate with the public. Neither the movement as a whole, nor most of the multitudinous groups within it have established a means of explaining their positions on various issues, but the public is conditioned to look for spokespeople. While it has consciously not chosen spokespeople, the movement has thrown up many women who have caught the public eye for varying reasons. These women represent no particular group or established opinion. They know this and usually say so. But because there are no official spokespeople, nor any decision-making body that the press can query when it wants to know the movement's position on a subject, these women are perceived as the spokespeople. Thus, whether they want to or not, whether the movement likes it or not, women of public note are put in the role of spokespeople by default. This is one main source of the ire that is often felt toward the women who are labeled as stars. Because they were not selected by the women in the movement to represent the movement's views, they are resented when the press presumes they speak for the movement. But as long as the movement does not select its own spokeswoman, such women will be placed in that role by the press and the public, regardless of their own desires. This has several negative consequences for both the movement and the women labeled stars. First, because the movement didn't put them in the role of spokesperson, the movement cannot remove them. The press put them there and only the press can choose not to listen. 
The press will continue to look to stars as spokeswomen as long as it has no official alternatives to go for, for authoritative statements from the movement. The movement has no control in the selection of its representatives to the public as long as it believes that it should have no, that it should have no representatives at all. The second negative consequence is women put in this position often find themselves viciously attacked by their sisters. This achieves nothing for the movement and is painfully destructive to the individuals involved. Such attacks only result in either the woman leaving the movement entirely, often bitterly alienated, or in her ceasing to feel responsible to her sisters. She may maintain some loyalty to the movement, vaguely defined, but she is no longer susceptible to pressures from other women in it. One cannot feel responsible to people who have been the source of such pain without being a masochist. And these women are usually too strong to bow to that kind of personal pressure. Thus, the backlash to the star system, in effect, encourages the very kind of individualistic non-responsibility that the movement condemns. By purging a sister as a star, the movement loses whatever control it may have had over the person who then becomes free to commit all the of the individualistic sins of which she has been accused. The next section is called Political Impotence. Unstructured groups may be very effective in getting women to talk about their lives. They aren't very good for getting things done. It is when people get tired of just talking and want to do something more that the groups flounder unless they change the nature of their operation. Occasionally, the developed informal structure of the group coincides with an available need that the group can fill in such a way as to give the appearance that an unstructured group works. That is, the group has fortuitously developed precisely the kind of structure best suited for engaging in a particular project. Like, oops, we got it right. While working in this kind of group is a very heady experience, it is also rare and very hard to replicate. There are almost inevitably four conditions found in such a group. One, it is task-oriented. Two, it is relatively small and homogeneous. Three, there is a high degree of communication. And four, there is a low degree of skill specification. Let me go back and describe what each of those four conditions are. One, it is, a ta it is task oriented. Its function is very narrow and very specific, like putting on a conference or putting out a newspaper. It is the task that basically structures the group. The task determines what needs to be done and when it needs to be done. It provides a guide by which people can judge their actions and make plans for future activity. Second, it is relatively small and homogeneous. Homogeneity is necessary to ensure that participants have a common language for interaction. 
people from widely different backgrounds may provide richness to a consciousness raising group where each can learn from the other's experience. But too great, diver too great a diversity among members of a task-oriented group means only that they continually misunderstand each other. Such diverse people interpret words and actions differently. They have different expectations about each other's behavior and judge the results according to different criteria. If everyone knows everyone well enough to understand the nuances, these can be accommodated. Usually, they only lead to confusion and endless hours spent straightening out conflicts no one ever thought would arise. The third is there is a high degree of communication. Information must be passed on to everyone, opinions checked, work divided up, and participation assured in the relevant decisions. This is only possible if the group is small and people practically live together for the most critical phases of the task. Needless to say, the number of interactions necessary to involve everybody increases geometrically with the number of participants. This inevitably limits group participants to about five or excludes some from the decisions. Successful groups can be as large as 10 or 15, but only when they are in fact composed of several smaller subgroups, which perform specific parts of the task and whose members overlap with each other so that knowledge of what the different subgroups are doing can be passed around easily. And fourth, there is a low degree of sp skill specialization. Not everyone has to be able to do everything, but everything must be able to be done by more than one person. Thus, no one is indispensable. To a certain extent, people become interchangeable parts. While these conditions can occur serendipitously in small groups, this is not possible in large ones. Consequently, because the larger movement in most cities is unstructured at individual rap groups, it is not too much more effective than the separate groups at specific tasks. The informal structure is rarely together enough or in touch enough with the people to be able to operate effectively, so the movement generates much motion and few results. Unfortunately, the consequences of all this motion are not as innocuous as the results, and their victim is the movement itself. Some groups have formed themselves into local action projects if they do not involve many people and work on a small scale. But this form restricts movement activity to the local level. It cannot be done on the regional or national. Also to function well, the groups must usually pare themselves down to that informal group of friends who were running things in the first place. This excludes many women from participating. As long as the only way women can participate in the movement is through membership in a small group, the non-gregarious are at a distinct disadvantage. As long as, a, as, long as friendship groups are the main means of organizational activity, elitism becomes institutionalized. For those groups which cannot find a local project to which to devote themselves, the mere act of staying together becomes the reason for their staying together. When a group has no specific task, and consciousness raising is a task, 
The people in it turn their energies to controlling others in the group. And let me say that again. When a group has no specific task, the people in it turn their energies to controlling others in the group. This is not done so much out of malicious desire to manipulate others as out of a lack of anything better to do with their talents. Able people with time on their hands and a need to justify their coming together put their efforts into personal personal control and spending their time criticizing the personalities of the other members in the group. Infighting and personal power games rule the day. When a group is involved in a task, people learn to get along with others as they are and to subsume personal dislikes for the sake of the larger goal. There are limits placed on the the compulsion to remold every person into our image of what they should be. The end of consciousness raising leaves people with no place to go, and the lack of structure leaves them with no way of getting there. The women in the movement either turn in on themselves and their sisters or seek alternatives, other alternatives of action. There are few that are available. Some women just do their own thing. This can lead to a great deal of individual creativity, much of which is useful for the movement, but is not a viable alternative for most women and certainly does not foster a spirit of cooperative group effort. Other women drift out of the movement entirely because they don't want to develop an individual project and they have no and they have found no way of discovering, joining, or starting group projects that interest them. Many turn to other political organizations to give them the kind of structured, effective activity that they have not been able to find in the women's movement. Those political organizations which see women's liberation as only one of many issues to which women should devote their time thus find the movement a vast recruiting ground for new members. There is no need for such organizations to, quote, infiltrate, though this is not precluded. The desire for meaningful political activity generated in women by their, by their becoming part of the liberate, women's liberation movement is sufficient to make them eager to join other organizations when the movement itself provides no outlets for their ideas and energies. Those women who join other political organizations while remaining within the women's liberation movement or who join women's liberation while remaining in other political organizations in turn become the framework for new informal structures. These friendship networks are based upon their common non-feminist politics rather than the characteristics discussed earlier, but operate in much the same way. Because these women share common values, ideas, and political orientations, they too become informal, unplanned, unselected, unresponsibilities, whether they intend to be so or not. These new, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> these new informal elites are often perceived as threats by the old informal elites, previously developed within different movement groups. This is a correct perception. Such politically oriented networks are rarely willing to be merely sororities as many of the old ones were and want to proselytize their political as well as their feminist ideas. 
This is only natural, but its implications for women's liberation have never been adequately discussed. The old elites are rarely willing to bring such differences of opinion out into the open because it would involve exposing the nature of the informal structure of the group. Many of these informal elites have been hiding under the banner of anti-elitism and structurelessness. To effectively counter the competition from another informal structure, they would have to become public. And this possibility is fraught with many dangerous implications. Thus, to maintain its own power, it is easier to rationalize the exclusion of the members of the other informal structure by means such as red baiting, reformist baiting, lesbian baiting, or straight baiting. The only other alternative is to formally structure the group in such a way that the original power structure is institutionalized. This is not always possible. If the informal elites have been well-structured and have exercised a fair amount of power in the past, such a task is feasible. These groups have a history of being somewhat politically effective in the past, as the tightness of the informal structure has proven an adequate substitute for a formal structure. Becoming structured does not alter their operation much, though the institutionalization of the power structure does open it to formal challenge. It is those groups which are in the greatest need of structure that often that are often least capable of creating it. Their informal structures have not been too well formed and adherence to the ideology of structurelessness makes them reluctant to change tactics. The more unstructured a group is, the more lacking it is in inform the more lacking it is in informal structures and the more it adheres to an ideology of structurelessness, the more vulnerable it is to being taken over by a group group of political comrades. Since the movement at large is just as unstructured as most of its <clears throat> constituent groups, it is similarly susceptible to indirect influence. I need to get a drink of something so that I'm not... <clears throat> Thanks for being here, Drew. I appreciate your being here. We're about, looks like three quarters of the way through. Maybe another 15, no, 10 minutes. Since the movement at large is just as unstructured as most of its constituent groups, it is similarly susceptible to indirect influence. But the phenomenon manifests itself differently. On a local level, most groups can operate autonomously. But the only groups that can organize a national activity are nationally organized groups. Thus, it is often the structured feminist organizations that provide national direction for feminist activities, and this direction is determined by the priorities of those organizations. Such groups as NOW, WEAL, W-E-A-L, and some leftist women's caucuses are simply 
the only organizations capable of mounting a national campaign. The multitude of unstructured women liberation groups can choose to support or not support the national campaigns, but are incapable of mounting their own. Thus, their members become the troops under the leadership of the structured organizations. The avowedly unstructured groups have no way of drawing upon the movement's vast resources to support its priorities. It doesn't even have a way of deciding what they are. The more unstructured a movement is, and I just want to draw everybody's attention to this part, the more unstructured a movement is, the more unstructured a movement is, the less control it has over the directions in which it develops and the political actions in which it engages. This does not mean that its ideas do not spread. Given a certain amount of interest by the media and the appropriateness of social conditions, the ideas will still be diffused widely. But diffusion of ideas does not mean they are implemented. It only means they are talked about. Insofar as they can be applied individually, they may be acted on. Insofar as they require coordinated political power to be implemented, they will not be. As long as the women's liberation movement stays dedicated to a form of organization which stresses small, inactive discussion groups among friends, the worst problems of unstructuredness will not be felt. But this style of organization has its limits. It is politically inefficacious, exclusive, and discriminatory against those women who are not or cannot be tied into the friendship networks. Those who do not fit into what already exists because of class, race, occupation, education, parental or marital status, personality, etc., will inevitably de be discouraged from trying to participate. Those who do fit in will develop vested interests in maintaining things as they are. The informal group's vested interest will be sustained by the informal structures which exist, and the movement will have no way of determining who shall exercise power within it. If the movement continues deliberately to not select who shall exercise power, it does not thereby abolish power. All it does is abdicate the right to demand that those who do exercise power and influence be responsible for it. If the movement continues to keep power as diffuse as possible because it knows it cannot demand responsibility from those who have it, it does prevent any group or person from totally dominating. But it simultaneously ensures that the movement is as ineffective as possible. Some middle ground between domination and ineffectiveness can and must be found. These problems are coming to a head at this time because of the nature of, because the nature of the movement is necessarily changing. Consciousness raising at, as the main function of the women's liberation movement is becoming obsolete due to the intense press publicity of the last two years and numerous overground books and articles now being circulated. Women's liberation has become a household word. Its issues are discussed and informal rap groups are formed by people who have no explicit connection with any movement group. The movement must go on to other tasks. 
it now needs to establish its priorities, articulate its goals, and pursue its objectives in a coordinated fashion. To do this, it must get organized locally, regionally, and nationally. The final section of this essay from 1970 is titled Principles of Democratic Structuring. Once the movement no longer clings tenaciously to the ideology of structurelessness, it is free to develop those forms of organization best suited to its healthy functioning. This does not mean that we should go to the other extreme and blindly imitate the traditional forms of organization, but neither should we blindly reject them. Some of the traditional techniques will prove useful, albeit not perfect. Some will give us insights into what we should and should not do to obtain certain ends with minimal costs to the individuals in the movements. Mostly, we will have to experiment with different kinds of structuring and develop a variety of techniques to use for different situations. The lot system is one such idea which has emerged from the movement. It is not applicable to all situations, but it is useful in some. Other ideas for structuring are needed. But before we can proceed to experiment intelligently, we must accept the idea that there is nothing inherently bad about structure itself, only its excessive use. While engaging in this trial and error process, there are some principles we can keep in mind that are essential to democratic structuring and are also politically effective. There are seven of these principles that are essential to democratic structuring and politically effective. Number one, delegation. Delegation of specific authority to specific individuals for specific tasks by democratic procedures. Letting people assume jobs or tasks only by default means they are not dependably done. If people are selected to do a task, preferably after expressing an interest or willingness to do it, they have made a commitment which cannot be so easily ignored. Second, requiring all, all those to whom authority has been delegated to be responsible to those who selected them. This is how the group has control over people in positions of authority. Individuals may exercise power, but it is the group that has the ultimate say over how power is exercised. The third principle, distribution of authority among as many people as is reasonably possible. This prevents monopoly of power and requires those in positions of authority to consult with, as many, with many others in the process of exercising it. It also gives many people the opportunity to have responsibility for specific tasks and thereby learn different skills. The fourth principle, rotation of tasks among individuals. Responsibilities which are held too long by one person, formally or informally, come to be seen as that person's property and are not easily relinquished or controlled by the group. Conversely, if tasks are rotated too frequently, the individual does not have time to learn her job well and acquire the sense of satisfaction of doing a good job. 
The fifth principle, allocation of tasks along rational criteria. Selecting someone for a position because they are liked by the group or giving them hard work because they are disliked serves neither the group nor the person in the long run. Ability, interest, and responsibility have got to be the major concerns in such selection. People should be given an opportunity to learn skills they do not have, but this is best done through some sort of apprenticeship program rather than the sink or swim method. Having a responsibility one can't handle is demoralizing. Conversely, being blacklisted from doing what one can do well does not encourage one to develop one's skills. Women have been punished for being competent throughout most of human history. The movement does not need to repeat this process. Number six, diffusion of information to everyone as frequently as possible. Information is power. Access to information enhances one power. When an informal network spreads new ideas and information among themselves outside the group, they are already engaged in the process of forming an opinion without the group participating. The more one knows about how things work and what is happening, the more politically effective one can be. And the seventh principle, equal access to resources needed by the group. This is not always perfectly possible, but should always be striven for. A member who maintains a monopoly over a needed resource, like a printing press owned by a husband or a darkroom, can unduly influence the use of that resource. Skills and information are also resources. Members' skills can be equitably available only when members are willing to teach what they know to others. When these principles are applied, they ensure whatever structures are developed by movement, different movement groups will be controlled by and responsible to the group. The group of people in positions of authority will be diffuse, flexible, open, and temporary. They will not be in such an easy position to institutionalize their power because ultimate decisions will be made by the group at large. The group will have the power to determine who shall exercise authority within it. And I just want to briefly recap those seven democratic essential principles for democratic structuring and political effectiveness. Delegation of specific authority to specific individuals for specific tasks by democratic procedures. Like, Joe is going to do that because we all voted that Joe is going to do that. The second one is requiring all those to whom authority has been delegated to be responsible to those who selected them, which is the basis of most democracies. The third is distribution of authority among as many people as reasonably possible. The fourth is rotation of tasks among individuals. Five, allocation of tasks along rational criteria. Six, diffusion of information to everyone as frequently as possible. And seven, equal access to resources needed by the group. That concludes the reading of The Tyranny of Structurelessness by Joe Freeman. There are a few critiques um, of this of this essay, one of which 
I found on the Commons Library, which is a social change library. I'm going to take a pause here before I get into that, though, and see if anyone has any questions. This is a review by Joel Dignam. Groups are fascinating things. Sometimes you're in a group and everything seems to go so well, it's almost like magic. Other times, much more often I fear, groups are a burden. Communication is poor, decision-making is chaotic and things aren't getting done. Joe Freeman's The Tyranny of Structurelessness is a 1970 paper that explores some of the structural problems facing groups. She draws her argument from the women's movement and aims it at the same audience, but her insights are relevant to all groups. Do read her excellent original piece, because I would feel somewhat patriarchal if I thought I was doing the world a service simply by regurgitating her work. Rather, I'll do a brief summary here. Hopefully you get enough, to, hopefully enough to get you to read her paper and consider what has resonated with me. Formal structures counteract the inevitability of elites. Freeman argues that the existence of elites is inevitable in groups. She defines an elite as a small group of people who have power over a larger group which they are a part, usually without direct responsibility to that larger group and often without their knowledge or consent. Such elites form because groups will have members who are friends and thus have informal networks for communication and decision-making that exist outside of the group's formal structures. Inevitably and quite defensively, friends who are in the same group will discuss the work of that group and their ideas about it, and this means that they have more power than the other members of the group. Informal structures are not, writes Freeman, inevitably bad, just inevitable. But there are risks. Decisions can end up reflecting the will of the elite and not the whole group. Two, decisions made may be made on the basis of friendship or connection, not competence dedication, talents, or potential contribution. Accepting this inevitability, Freeman proposes that the best response to, the, to inevitable elites is to create formal structures, which are a counterbalance to the informal structures, and create avenues for involvement for those who don't have access to the informal structures. By handing more power to regular group members, this also makes elites more accountable to the entire group. So elites are inevitable because friends will get involved together and communicate with each other outside of formal channels. 
This can have negative consequences. The best response is formal structures. In particular, these structures should make sure that tasks, information, and resources are widely shared in the group. The same people shouldn't keep doing the same things. Everyone should know the same public information, and people should have access to the same resources. Whew. That's the bulk of it. Why I love this so much. And again, this is a critique of the essay by Joel Dignam. I've been in my share of groups that have inadequate formal structures because of the ubiquity and strength of informal structures. This paper clearly showed me the downsides of those informal structures and the fact that formal structures can do a great deal to empower other people to get involved and contribute to the group's work. For example, I've been in a group in which some members of a core team were close friends with each other, while other members of the core team weren't as intimately linked. Those who were close friends were, of course, spending more time together and communicating more. Thus, quoting Freeman, they listen more attentively to each other, interrupt less, they repeat each other's points and give in amiably, they tend to ignore or grapple with the outs whose approval is not necessary for making a decision. In this case, formal structures existed, but they weren't strong, and the elite began to undermine their efficacy. This further weakened the formal structures and resulted in the elite having more power. Eventually, the elite can exercise a great deal of control over the group, even if not explicitly. It is very nice to be friends with everyone in your group, but it probably means that some talented non-friends are not getting involved. On a more positive note, this paper made me appreciate many of the processes of the, ACE, of the ACT Greens. The ACT Greens have a fortnightly bulletin going to all members, ensuring that members of the group have information allowing them to exercise opportunities for collaboration and decision-making. Processes exist for assuming authority within the group, as well as for holding such power holders to account. While it's inevitable that the ACT Greens branch hosts a number of social networks, each a different elite in its own right, the strongly structured formal channels give members power to know what is going on and take part in decision-making, regardless of their participation in such elites. Moreover, Freeman's paper has, been, has made me consider how such structures could be further improved, possibly there could be more accessible information about the different groups that exist and how to join them, reducing the dependence on informal or ad hoc channels for the flow of information. We need more people not like us. Most of the people, most of the people I know, if they are in groups, will be in elites within those groups. Like me, They'll have extra time to develop social ties in their groups, inevitably and understandably increasing the power of their social group relative to a newcomer. This is not necessarily a problem. The problem is when there is only informal structures and there aren't formal structures to make sure that the outs have access to the same information and authority as the ins. Can outs find out when meetings are? when decisions are being made? 
Are decisions debated more outside meetings than in? Is it easy for someone who isn't socially connected to know how they can be involved? Freeman's tyranny of structurelessness was a call to the women's movement as it transitioned from consciousness raising to a desire to design and execute a political agenda. Effective strategy, effective groups weren't possible without effective structure. For those of us who've found ourselves outside looking in, it's easy to see the benefits of a formal structure. But for those of us on the inside, it's trickier to see the advantages of reducing our own power as we make it possible, as we make it more possible for others, maybe busy, maybe introverted, maybe just different from ourselves to join us in the important work we do. Yet it is the only way that our groups and those we seek to represent can have full control over their own direction. And that was a critique of the essay by Joel Dignam, who put this out on medium.com in 2015. He's Australian. Well, this has been a nice long reading today. I will be publishing this episode of The Tyranny of Structurelessness. And the next episode is going to be How Citizens' Groups Destroy Themselves, which is an essay by Charles Dobson, also on the same site, Citizen's Handbook. I appreciate you joining me and listening to this episode of a special series of crowdsourcing revolution. I'm Amanda Rice. I hope you have a great day today and tomorrow. And heck, let's just say, be good to yourself and others because then you'll have a better life.